Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the History of Russia. This is episode 36, Tsar Mikhail. Thanks for listening in. Okay, so last time out we tied up some loose ends from the time of troubles and then covered the early part of Tsar Mikhail's time in the big seat, even though from 1619 onwards it was his father, Philaret, who was pulling the strings. This week we'll put the spotlight on the two powers that sat to Russia's north and west, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which we've spent quite a bit of time on, and Sweden, which we haven't and then the remainder of the episode will be spent looking at the rest of Mikhail and Philaret's reign. There are no distractions this week, no messages, no marketing. Uh, the only thing for me to say very quickly is that I'm over my bout of man flu and it was tough. And give a massive thank you to Leanne and Lance for their very kind comments, which I've posted up on the website. Well, up on the new website. Okay then, let's get straight into some history, and we'll start off with the Commonwealth. So as we know, Poland and Lithuania have been joined together since 1386, initially via a royal personal union, and then since 1569 as a formal Commonwealth, with Poland tending to dominate and being seen by most as a senior partner. So hence we get the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and not the Lithuanian-Polish Commonwealth. Sorry, Lithuania. So at the beginning of the 17th century, it was one of the largest and most populated countries in Europe, around 400,000 square miles, or for those that prefer metric, a million square kilometres. And it had approximately 10 to 12 million people from various ethnic backgrounds. The official languages were Polish and interestingly Latin. I don't think anyone spoke Latin. Well, they may have done, but most didn't. It's probably used for state occasions and writing. And a large percentage of the population were Roman Catholics. 
The capital, originally Krakow, was now Warsaw. And still is. Well, of Poland. In 1619, the elected head of state was still Sigismund III, who, as we know, had been behind, or slightly to one side of, the recent Polish incursions into Russia during the Time of Troubles. However, and as I've previously intimated, Sigismund never really pressed home his military advantage, either because he didn't want to get fully sucked into Russian affairs, or because he was otherwise occupied and couldn't find the time. And to be honest, it was six of one and half a dozen of the other. And that's A, because we know that Moscow during the Time of Troubles was a bit of a viper's nest, partly it has to be said, of Sigismund's own making, and therefore best avoided. And then B, the Commonwealth's unique governance structure exercised a number of onerous checks upon the monarch, who, remember, was only elected to the position. And Sigismund, who rather pictured himself as the autocrat's autocrat, absolutely hated the slightest sign of interference from either the legislature, the Siem, or the nobility, the Zlachta, and spent a great deal of his time, probably far too much of his time, in attempting to bypass, ignore, or challenge both bodies. And there were three other areas or items to which Sigismund either had paid or was paying particular attention to, and which, frankly, relegated the situation in his mind, in Moscow and Russia, to that of a sideshow. The first of these was the Commonwealth's institutional protection of religious freedom and tolerance, particularly towards orthodoxy and Protestantism, which the king, as a die-hard Catholic, was always looking to challenge. And secondly, Sigismund had invested significant time, money and material in successfully combating and keeping in check another regional power, the Ottoman Empire. And then finally, and this one was personal, there was the growing threat of Sweden and the potential difficulties this presented the Commonwealth in terms of the balance of power in the Baltic. So we'll leave the fully occupied Sigismund and the Commonwealth there for a moment and head northwards to take a closer look at what was going on from the Swedish perspective. But don't worry, that personal aspect I've just mentioned will be explained. So in 1620, the Kingdom of Sweden, which, to be honest, has up to now received scant attention on this podcast, is doing very nicely for itself. Thank you very much. Like Russia and the Commonwealth, it was one of the larger countries in Europe, but it had about a tenth of their individual populations, coming in at around somewhere between a million and a million and a half. And the Swedish state in the middle of the 17th century was bigger, far bigger in fact, than Sweden is today, as it included most of Finland, bits of Norway, and various pieces of land on the main European side of the Baltic coast. So I've put a map up on the website, uh, historyofrussia.net, which should make things a bit clearer. And in fact, um, some of the viewers who got in, viewers, some of the listeners who got in touch uh, about where to find the maps on the website, they're all on on their own page, um, simply called uh, Maps and Timelines, and it all should be a lot clearer. Okay, back to Sweden. So things hadn't always been this rosy. However, as during long periods of the medieval age, 
Sweden had been dominated and effectively ruled over by its Scandinavian neighbours. Norway, a small amount, but more significantly, Denmark. So between 1397 and 1523, there'd been the Kalmar Union, a joint enterprise consisting of Denmark, Norway and Sweden, covering most of modern-day Scandinavia, that was formed mainly at the behest of the Danes to counteract the trading and political influences of the Hanseatic League. As per the early days of the Polish-Lithuanian get-together, the Kalmar Union followed the one-ruler, separate political states model, but everyone kind of knew that Denmark was the senior partner and effectively called the shots. And Swedish resentment of this state of affairs ebbed and flowed between grudging acceptance and outright rebellion. But the Kalmar Union managed to limp along with a fix here and a tweak there until the beginning of the 16th century. Then, in 1501, there was a large-scale peasant rebellion in Sweden against the Swedish faction that supported the Danes. But neither side could get the upper hand. And so, after a couple of decades of toing and froing, and with the overall situation still remaining unresolved, the Danish Catholic king, Christian II, decided that enough was enough and weighed in on the side of his Swedish supporters. Christian invaded Sweden with a large army and defeated a number of the Swedish rebels at the Battle of Bogesund in 1520, killing their leader, Sten Sture the Younger. And then Christian and his entourage set up shop in the Swedish capital, Stockholm, made promises that no harm would come to anyone who had supported Stensturer, and then with the connivance of the Swedish Archbishop Troller of Uppsala and his pro-Danish, pro-Kalmar Union followers, had himself crowned on November the 4th, 1520, as King of Sweden. There then appears to have been what only can be described as a three-day beer fest, where the Swedes, from both sides of the divide, and the Danes joked, drank, and generally seemed to be getting on together like the proverbial house on fire. However, on the evening of November the 7th, a large group of Swedish rebel leaders were summoned to the palace for talks, and then suddenly Danish soldiers entered the Great Hall and arrested and then imprisoned the majority of the Swedes. Further arrests were made during the night and throughout the next day and then on the morning of the 9th at a council meeting headed by Archbishop Troller, the list was produced, the names were ticked off and the sentences were read out. Then at noon, two anti-Kalmar Union bishops, uh, Swedish bishops, were led out into the Great Square and had their heads chopped off. Fourteen noblemen, three burgomasters, 14 town councillors and about 20 common citizens of Stockholm were then also either hanged or beheaded. The executions continued throughout the following day and it's estimated that by the evening of the 10th a total of 82 Swedes had been assassinated and then just like that, mainly because there was no one else left on the list, the killing stopped and the infamous Stockholm bloodbath, and that's how this event has become formally known, came to an end. In a proclamation to the Swedish people, Christian attempted to justify the massacre 
by suggesting that if he hadn't have acted, Sweden would have been served with a papal interdict. Which was a load of old tosh, because later, when apologising to the Pope for the killing of the bishops, he blamed his troops for performing unauthorised acts of vengeance. Ah, the classic, a few bad apples excuse. Still in use today. Swedish opposition to the Danish regime went underground for a while, but surfaced again under the leadership of the energetic and driven Gustav Wasser, who was the son of one of the victims of the bloodbath, and who in the end managed to kick the Danes out of the country, set himself up as king, and established the Wasser dynasty as rulers of a united Lutheran Sweden. Gustav died in 1560, and he was succeeded by his eldest son, Eric XIII. Unlucky for some. And for this, uh, for Eric, this proved to be the case, as unfortunately he went slowly mad and died in 1569 from suspected arsenic poisoning. Eric, by the way, also happened to be one of the many unsuccessful marriage suitors of Elizabeth I of England. Uh, the number of times Elizabeth I of England has been mentioned on this podcast. Incredible. Eric's premature passing brought his younger brother John III onto the Swedish throne, and this caused a few alarm bells to ring in the ears of the Swedish clergy, who suspected the new king of having pro-Catholic, or at the very least anti-Lutheran tendencies, and that these mindsets were driven in the main by John's Polish Catholic wife, Catherine Jagiewon. And in terms of that religious tension, things would only get worse because in 1592, John died and his son Sigismund, yeah, that Sigismund, who since 1587 had been king of Poland, became the first Catholic Vassar king of Sweden. Now, as you probably guessed or surmised, Sigismund's time as king of Sweden, he reigned between 1592 and 1599, did not go smoothly. This was mainly due to the fact that the king and his Swedish nobles and subjects just didn't see eye to eye on a number of basic levels, uh, personal, religious, political. And Sigismund, never one to brook even the smallest amount of criticism or disagreement, came to the conclusion that it would be much better for all concerned, particularly his ungrateful Swedish subjects, if he was to leave them to it. And so he started to spend more and more time in Poland, which as we know, kept him busy enough anyway, leaving the day-to-day -day running of Sweden in the hands of his uncle Charles, who was Gustav Wasser's youngest son. Bad move, Sigismund, because in the end, Charles, who was A, Lutheran, B, popular, and C, no mug, slowly and surely engineered a situation that ended with a brief civil war and Sigismund being forced to abdicate by the Swedish parliament, something which Sigismund apparently never forgot and which would go on to drive his anti-Swedish and anti-Protestant Lutheran biases. Charles stepped into the breach, of course he did, and ruled Sweden until 1611 as Charles IX, even though he was only the third Swedish king to have been named Charles up to that point. But let's not go there. And he was succeeded by his son and Sigismund's cousin, Gustavus Adolphus, who we first met in the last episode when Russia and Sweden signed the peace treaty that brought the Ingrian War to an end in 1617. 
So whilst both Sweden and the Commonwealth had reaped political and territorial gains from their respective Russian campaigns during the time of Troubles, for most of the next decade they would become more preoccupied with each other. Plus, in Sweden's case, there would be the small matter of the Thirty Years' War, a series of religious stroke dynastic conflicts impacting Central Europe, which would last in one form or another until 1648. Okay, so that's brought things up to date with Sweden and the Commonwealth, and with everything quiet for the time being on Russia's western and northern fronts, let's wing our way east and see what the Romanov father and son double act were doing in terms of getting the country back on its feet. Well, actually, some of that necessary restorative work had been started prior to Filarek's return, in that there had been some attempts made to reform the government and some thoughts around how to come up with some much-needed cash. Numerous new departments of state, around 11 of them, had been set up, including a masonry department to repair, rebuild the towns and cities damaged in the recent unrest, a brigand department to restore law and order, oh, and an apothecary department to look after the Tsar's health and well-being. The trouble was, however, that the money required to fund these various departments and initiatives just wasn't there, and so one of Mikhail's other actions had been to ask the Stroganov family for a loan, which they agreed to, but with certain conditions like, what's in it for us? More of that in a while. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. So understanding that the loan was only a short-term fix, Mikhail's next step was to arrange a census of the Russian lands and people, and then once that had been completed, a root and branch reform of the taxation system was undertaken, and further restrictions upon the movement of the peasants were introduced. Now, just as an aside here, I made a rash promise a few weeks ago, uh, which I haven't forgotten, to do a special episode on serfdom. That's still the plan. And hopefully that will be done, well, within the next few episodes anyway. I need to get it out of the way. I can't keep saying I'm going to do it and then, you know, just not. Anyway, by the time of Philaret's return in 1619, things were slowly starting to get better economically. But once he'd got his feet under the table and got to grips with just how much money and power was in the hands of of the heads of the various departments, i.e. the boyars, the patriarch suggested to his son 
that perhaps a return to the old ways of doing things was the best way forward. And so the various departments, plus the Boyar Council and the Zemsky Sabor, were either sidelined or allowed to wither. The kind of, thanks everyone, but me and the boy will take things from here. The wily Philarette also realised that all of this restoration, reform and rebuilding would only be of benefit to both the Romanov dynasty and the Russian state if two further items were prioritised. First off, Mikhail and the dynasty needed an heir, and secondly, Russia needed to bolster its defences and sort out its military. Philarette's fear here was that unless both of these priorities were fixed, then it would only be a matter of time before Russia again experienced either a foreign invasion or a further round of political instability, or both. And the trouble with priority number one, uh, the fact that Mikhail didn't have an heir, that in 1623, a full ten years after his accession, the Tsar was still unmarried. Now, he had been engaged once, back in 16, to a certain Maria Klopova, but for some reason, probably a long-standing family feud, Mikhail's mother Martha had decided she just wouldn't do. And then according to some accounts, Martha attempted to poison Maria, and then when that didn't work, she insisted that the girl's illness, caused by the poison no doubt, was proof that she would never be able to bear children, which is a strange conclusion to come to, but there you go. And for this disgrace, poor Maria and her family were exiled to Siberia. There were several other matches proposed, but nothing ever came of them, until it's in September 1624, with Philaret no doubt forcing the issue, Mikhail suddenly married the daughter of a prominent boyar, Maria Dolgorukova, who was a distant relative of Yuri Dolgoruki of 12th century Vladimirian Rus fame. And if you remember him, but Yuri Dolgoruki was effectively translated into English as Yuri Long Arms. However, in the January of 1625, Maria No. 2 fell ill, and by the 17th of the same month, she was dead. Mikhail was apparently crestfallen, and according to some sources, vowed never to marry again. But later in the year, his eye fell upon the daughter of a minor boyar, Eudoxia Strezhnieva, and despite opposition from his own family, who didn't think that Eudoxia's family were important enough, and Eudoxia's parents, who were probably worried about their daughter's health and all the threat of Siberian exile if anything went wrong, the couple were married in February 1626. Mikhail and Eudoxia would go on to have a relatively happy marriage, and in due course ten children would be born, seven daughters and three sons. But only four of these children would survive into adulthood, Luckily for the Romanovs, one of them was a son, Alexei, born in 1629, who everybody hoped would go on to rule as Tsar in his own right. So with dynastic matters apparently sorted, Mikhail and Philaret's attention turned towards the nation's defence and the military. So over the past 50 years, Russia's army had consisted of the Streltsy, and various other regiments that were raised by individual members of the nobility as and when they were required. 
The Streltsy, which, uh, and Streltsy literally means shooters, had been created as an elite military unit back in Ivan the Terrible's time and were mainly recruited from amongst free tradespeople and the rural population. Eventually, service within the Streltsy became hereditary and lifelong, and as the years passed by, it started to become more and more self-serving and its military effectiveness started to diminish. And so it was decided that a proper state-run army consisting of paid infantry and light and heavy cavalry made up of native Russians and English and Scots mercenaries should be formed. The trouble was that once all of this had been put in place, the soldiers were effectively being paid to drill, exercise and then spend the rest of their time sitting around in their barracks. Hmm... If only there was some way that the new army could be tested. In 1632, Sigismund III finally died, and with the Commonwealth preoccupied with the succession, Mikhail and Philaret decided to chance their arms, see if they could win back some of the territory that the Poles still held. And so in the late summer, the Russian army commanded by the Boyar general Mikhail Sheyin was sent westwards and met little or no resistance. And also, several weeks prior to the advance, Philaret and Mikhail, who had long supported Sweden's efforts in the Thirty Years' War via cheap grain exports, had sent envoys northwards to negotiate an anti-Commonwealth alliance with the Swedish king, which Gustavus Adolphus had indicated would be looked upon favourably. So things were looking good for the Romanovs, but regular listeners to this podcast will probably know know what I'm going to say next. However, during the next 12 months, four adverse and potentially calamitous events from a Russian perspective occurred one after the blinking other. So number one, the matter of the Commonwealth succession became resolved and the new king, Vladislav IV, Sigismund's son, who had never relinquished his claim to the Russian throne, immediately sent reinforcements to the Smolensk front. Number two. In November 1632, the King of Sweden, Gustavus Adolphus, died at the Battle of Lützen, one of the major conflicts in the Thirty Years' War. Number three, in 1633, the Crimean Tatars decided to invade Russia from the south, and then number four, to top it all off, in the autumn of 1633, the patriarch and senior Tsar Philaret died, followed soon after by the great nun Martha. And so, at the beginning of winter, and with the arrival of Polish reinforcements and no sign of Swedish help, the formal alliance never actually materialised, Cheyenne's brand new army, which was now in the middle of besieging Polish-held Smolensk, suddenly found the going getting tougher, the Russian troops started to get bogged down, and throughout the rest of 1633, the front developed into a messy stalemate. Then the native Russian element and the large contingents of Scots and English mercenaries fell out with one another, and then, over the winter, the desertion started. By February 1634, with no sign or news of reinforcements, Cheyenne, realising that he was on a hiding to nothing, decided to surrender, 
a decision that he would come to regret because when he eventually made his way back to Moscow in April 1634, he was arrested, accused of high treason and executed. So Mikhail, by now without his father by his side and with no other realistic choice, agreed to sign the Treaty of Polyanovka, which left the situation exactly as it was before the so-called Smolensk War had started. Although there was one crumb of comfort for the beleaguered Tsar, Vladislav finally gave up his own claim to the Russian crown. And the Russian army? Well, that was disbanded on the grounds that it was no longer required. Plus, and this was probably the main driver, Mikhail just couldn't afford its upkeep. The Tatar invasion of Russia's southern borderlands, which at one point in 1633 had looked ominous, ran out of steam, due mainly to the presence of loyal Cossack groups and their use of hit-and-run guerrilla tactics. And then once the Smolensk War had ended, the Tsar had a defensive line of 29 fortified settlements built, which were able to keep the Crimeans at arm's length. So Mikhail had learned the hard way, although Filaret was probably the main instigator, that Russia had not been, and was still not, in a position to go on the offensive and reclaim the lands it had lost to the Swedes and the Poles. Far better now not to provoke anything and hold what he had. Concentrate on financial stability, particularly as the economy was starting to look healthy, and look elsewhere for opportunities to increase Russia's standing and territory. And that brings us rather nicely back to the Stroganovs, Siberia and the Far East. So remember that back in the early part of Mikhail's reign, the Stroganovs had provided the Tsar with a sizable loan on the understanding that good things would come their way. And the first of those good things was that the family received the title of Imintie Liudi, or Eminent Men, which brought with it a number of privileges. For example, they were only subject to the Tsar's judgment, and they could use the royal vich as an ending to their patronymics. The second good thing was that the Stroganovs, and the Stroganovs only, were formally given permission to set up towns and fortresses anywhere in Siberia, have their own private armies, and trade with whomever they wanted, keeping a larger than usual amount of the resultant revenue. Now, most of you probably remember that since Ivan the Terrible's time, the Stroganovs from most of, of the period had been one of the handful of families that were involved in Siberian expansion and trade. Well, now there was no one in their way, and they had it all. But what was it exactly? What was out there in the great Siberian expanse? Well, further territorial acquisition was always handy, particularly with things stymied to the west and south, and the trade in furs and, and timber was still a vital component of Russia's growing economy. But Siberia represented to Russia essentially what the Western territories represented or would represent to the Americans, Canadians and even the Spanish Mexicans for a while, sorry, Spanish stroke Mexicans, uh, in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. It was there. It was symbolic. And they wanted it, or rather, they didn't want anyone else to have it. 
And there was another aspect to Siberia. It had started to be and would go on to become, and still is, a handy place to keep troublemakers out of sight and out of mind. Exile to Siberia will become a much-used phrase in the episodes to come. And from Mikhail's point of view, the Stroganovs had proved that they could be relied upon. Why not give them what they wanted? Or rather, why not let them do the heavy lifting on behalf of the Russian state? Quid pro quo. So the Stroganovs set about forging and managing their quasi-empire with gusto. And by 1639, their agents had reached Vladivostok on the Pacific coast, some 4,000 miles from Moscow. Now, the Stroganovs didn't control every part of the land. That would have been impossible given Siberia's size and its climate. Plus, in a strange quirk of geography, there are very few east-to-west or west-to-east flowing rivers. The three, three main rivers, the Obe, the Yenisei and the Lena, all flow south to north. And while sparsely populated, there were other people already living in Siberia. Estimates point to a population in 1650 of around 300,000 natives. However, with the advent of Russian empire building came diseases from which the original inhabitants had no protection. And the worst of these diseases, due to its swift spread, high mortality rate and the permanent disfigurement of any survivors, was smallpox. In the middle part of the 17th century, it had moved to the east of the Yenisei River, where it is reported to have killed around 80% of the native population. Okay, so throughout the remainder of the 1630s and the early 1640s, Mikhail's reign, apart from a spat between the Ottomans and the Persians, which sort of spilled into Russian territory, was relatively quiet and peaceful. The only downside, and I've already mentioned this from the personal and dynastic viewpoint, was that the Tsar's children, and most notably his sons Ivan and Vasily, kept on dying young. But one of the sons, Alexei, did manage to survive past childhood, and when in 1645 Tsar Mikhail became ill with a combination of scurvy, dropsy, and probably depression, died aged just 50, the 16-year-old Alexei was as ready as he could ever be to step into his father's shoes. Well, at least he was no younger than Mikhail had been when he had been elected. Okay, uh, the old voice is giving up again, so that's where we're going to leave things for this week. Next time, we'll be taking a break from the chronological narrative and doing a, well, a sort of a state of the nation type episode on the current Russia-Ukraine situation, and in particular trying to fathom out how and why, historically, things have got where they are today. Well, not historical, historically, but the historical reasons for why things have got to where they are today. When we do get back to the main story, We'll be doing a sort of a high-level summary, a stroke conclusion of Mikhail's time in charge, and then we're going to spend some time covering the early part of Alexei's reign, which will feature what by now have become our three favourite words, Sweden, Commonwealth and War. So until next time, and as always, stay safe, look after yourselves, 
and I'll speak to you all soon. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.